behalf of EDOS, uh, let me welcome you to our Sports Christian Scholars Fellowship Talk today. And we're very pleased to have our speaker, uh, Bishop Emeritus Dr. Robert Solomon. Good afternoon to you, uh, and I want to thank the organizers for inviting me to share with you this afternoon. I, I actually was wondering what to share. Uh, I asked Roland, Roland, you know, with a group of scholars, um, what is there to share? And uh, he said, just encouragement. Just encouragement, he said. So I thought, okay, that's my, my cup of tea. So, <laughs> uh, let, so let me begin uh, by um, this point. Uh, I, I, I just basically have two points. But the, the first point is to look at the university and the displaced queen, or the dethroned queen, if I, I, can, if I can say that. It's interesting that some people argue that the oldest uh, university, the world's oldest surviving university, is the University of Nanjing in China. And uh, that's an interesting uh, idea. It was said to be founded around 258 BC. And uh, because this university did not issue formal degrees, before 1888, it is therefore not recognized as the oldest university. Uh, but I'm sure that Asians may try to recover this tradition and history and to say that, you know, the oldest university in the world, uh, continuing, continuous university is in, is in Asia, in China. Now, it is also recognized generally, I think if Nanjing is not recognized, but it is generally recognized that the oldest continuously operating degree granting university in the world is the University of Karouin in Fes, Morocco, which started as actually a mosque teaching religion in 859 AD, and uh, it continues to be a university. The point I want to make is the connection between university and religion. Uh, so in the, even in the non-Christian uh, world, in the non-Christian context uh, in the Middle East, uh, that was the case. Al-Azhar in Egypt also had similar beginnings and connections. And so that is uh, the, the, the relationship between university and religion. Universities emerging out of religious communities. Now in the Western world, in our Christian history, uh, the same phenomenon was, is true because the university in the Christian West emerged in the context of Christian monastic and uh, cathedral schools in those kinds of contexts. So the University of Bologna in 1088, established in 1088, the University of Paris in 1200, all these uh, were considered as universities that actually were given birth to by Christian communities, monasteries or cathedral schools. Now, in, it was in the 13th century that Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian, who coined this idea that theology is the queen of the sciences. And of course, the context for that was that in the ancient universities, uh, uh, there was the curriculum was the trivium, 
uh, and uh, that included grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And then the quadrivium, that is arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. It's like the arts and science uh, uh, wings of the university. And uh, it was in this context that Aquinas argued, uh, and I think quite cogently, that uh, theology was the queen of the sciences. Uh, that theology offered unity in diversity. Therefore, it offered a worldview which uh, helped to stitch together the various disciplines in the universities. And without it, uh, there will be chaos. So the whole idea is that there is a unifying worldview provided by Christian theology and the, the notion that the Bible was the standard uh, of truth, of knowledge, and it provided that worldview. And I, I, I was reading uh, Job 28 recently and just reminded of, of this point. Uh, uh, it's, it's a time of my, of my year when I'm presently reading Job. You know, I just read through the book, so Job is a very fascinating book. But in uh, chapter 28 in Job, it, the whole chapter talks about uh, mining for knowledge and wisdom and uses the metaphor of actually mining, going into the earth to dig up uh, precious metals and so on. And then in verse 12, where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? And after all the arguments, even the seas, the, the, the deep saying, I don't have the answers, finally, the last verse of that chapter says, the, uh, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Now that's, I think, that's the kind of uh, biblical theology or understanding that gave rise to this notion that there must be a unifying worldview or principle that brings everything together. And that is why it is a university, uh, unity in diversity. But, uh, of course, we all know that the intellectual history in the West uh, had many changes in, uh, after the medieval period, so the rise of the Enlightenment uh, brought on what can be considered as the eclipse of faith. That again, the enthronement of reason, faith was considered as a matter of opinion, so faith was marginalized, and theology subsequently was marginalized. That, that was the dethroning of the queen of the sciences, so to speak. And uh, it's, uh, I think we are still facing that, that trend today because those of, those of you who are teaching in universities, you realize perhaps that it's not theology that's the queen of the sciences. In fact, what is the queen of the sciences in the modern university? And perhaps there are several contenders. You can have naturalism or materialism or scientism. Uh, these are the ruling uh, you know, rulers of, of the modern university. In fact, the term polytechnic is interesting because what, is, what was a unity now has become a polyversity, so to speak, because uh, polytechnic suggests uh, techniques and the 
engage Christians in academia uh, in the professions also to collaborate with NCCS uh, in doing this sort of public square work. And the challenge continues to remain. Let me illustrate with one example. You know, there was a, a time when um, I think it was Mr. Lee Kuan Yew who said gays are born that way. Uh, gays are born this way. Born gay. You're born like that. And Go Chok Tong sort of just repeated that. Uh, he said, Amen. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we, we felt, hey, you cannot just get away with this sort of statement, right? Who, what scientific authority do you have to say gays are born that way? So we, we thought we should uh, represent a Christian position uh, to say hey, that's, that, that that can be debated. Uh, so when we tried to prepare something, uh, we found it very difficult to get scientific, Christian scientific voices uh, to be included in this response. People were either busy or a bit scared maybe. I mean, who wants to challenge Lee Kuan Yew, you see? Uh, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, we found it very difficult and I must say that at some point I personally got quite discouraged that you know we we have a we have a fantastic christian community uh, spread out over the professions the disciplines the academic disciplines uh, business community political circles and so on and yet you know how come we we can't get together uh, a group of christians to just speak the truth to to uh, speak it you know uh, not with belligerent voices but speak it reasonably uh, and, and it was difficult to do that. And I think that we continue to f face those kinds of situations. Now, some areas, and this is not, it's just a list, ad hoc list that came to mind. Uh, but, you know, if you think about the current situation, uh, medical ethics continues to be a big issue. From time to time, we have all kinds of uh, new challenges that emerge, and they want Christian, Christians to, uh, you know, make known their particular views, positions, uh, medical ethics, law, uh, economics, education, health, politics, sociology, philosophy, the arts, international relations, culture, history, so many things that uh, I think in the, in the public square and in the, um, in the way that public discussion goes, uh, this is a particularly challenging time for Christians to make their views known and to uh, propose a Christian worldview on these various items. If we are silent, then um, you can understand what will take place because then uh, the Christian voice will be missing uh, in this discussion, discourse that's taking place in the public square. So question, how can we, uh, using our specialist knowledge, bring the Christian worldview to address the many issues that we face today? Um, I think of, for, for instance, um, not only are Christian academics and professionals needed to uh, make known publicly 
uh, uh, Christian biblical position or worldview on various matters and, and we know the classical way is to produce uh, monographs, uh, uh, books or you know, uh, material that can be read. The, the greater challenge today is the social media. Because you, you can understand that a lot of our own people in church, especially young people, they consume the social media ravenously. And they get whatever they find in the social media. And if the Christian uh, contribution in the social media is, is insufficient, uh, then I think there's a great loss in this whole process. So one of the challenges for academics and professional professionals who are Christians, I think, is to make a presence in the social media uh, in some way. Can we do that? Uh, that's a question that we want to ask. And maybe this is a challenge for us because not only uh, is social media consumed by Christian young people, but also by non-Christian young people who also are looking for information and perspectives and so on. So this is the challenge I, I see. Now, I want to close with um, this, um, well, and before that, these are some of the books published by NCCS. Uh, this is the old school style, you know, we produce books which are very important and I'm glad we did this because it actually articulates a Christian position. So life sciences, uh, the arts, sights and sounds, we did this some years ago. Homosexuality, uh, that's Roland's book, Biomedical Ethics and the Church. Again, you know, putting forth a Christian position or perspective. And then all these are Roland's books. Huh? <laughs> Roland is, uh, he became a specialist in medical ethics. <laughs> uh, uh, human trading, uh, euthanasia, and uh, uh, chimera research, and so on. So all these arose actually out of the necessity of making a Christian position known uh, with the bioethics council, for example, and, and others who are interested in this. So I've already mentioned these two points. I want to conclude with this. Um, it's called a Christian Academic Manifesto produced by the British uh, National Christian Postgraduate Conference. And uh, they have produced this very, very interestingly following the suggestion of uh, somebody from Labri Fellowship, Andrew Fellows. And uh, uh, it's quite a, it's a lengthy uh, manifesto, but I've just chosen uh, a few points to suggest to us, maybe some things that maybe we can look into and uh, bear in mind and some of the implications for us. First, one part uh, examines a vision for Christians in academic life. And I, let me just read that. As Christian students of God's creation, we want our minds to be radically transformed by God. We trust Him to guide us towards a more accurate understanding of the world and of how we may transform it for good. 
we pursue God's wisdom in faithful relationship with Jesus Christ by engaging our minds fully in our studies strengthened by His Spirit. That's a kind of an ethos uh, for being Christians in, uh, in an academic setting, uh, in academic pursuit. So that, I think, is, uh, I find it very useful uh, to, to have something like that said uh, by Christian academics. The, the, the second, the other part is the Christian perspective on study and research. That yes, uh, Christians are also uh, in the academic disciplines, they also study, they also do research. So here are just two uh, points that I've selected. One, to articulate our worldview and demonstrate the rational coherence of our basic beliefs. And this may involve study beyond our specialist subject, especially in areas of philosophy and theology. Basically recognizing the danger of being reductionist. That in specialized fields, academic fields, it's possible to be very reductionist, but then to realize that actually that is uh, uh, not a very healthy position to take. Uh, and so to recognize also the, again, the place of philosophy and theology. The other point is using our academic gifts for the benefit of wider communities and promote the application of research for the common good. Again, that's a Christian uh, ethic. In, uh, why do we do research? Firstly, because you know it's God's world. Secondly, we, we are called to do good. So out of our research, to help the wider community. That's also an ethic of, for doing research. And then the third part, is this section, Christian living in academic communities. Uh, you see that the, the challenge is not only uh, doing research, studying, and uh, the way we do research, but also living as part of academic communities. There is a certain ethic or ethos in that too. So two points I want to highlight there. Get to know our colleagues, including students, lecturers, supervisors, management and support staff, as people made in God's image. In other words, uh, we ought to be Christian in the Christian academics in the right sense of the word, uh, showing Christ-likeness in the way we relate with uh, colleagues and others. And second, willingly support undergraduate students in their studies. I think this is a dimension of mentorship or mentoring, uh, of how uh, you have a great potential to mentor, in intellectually mentor and spiritually mentor those who come to study under you in your academic institutions. And uh, that's a great contribution that Christian academics can make too. So I just wanted to highlight this because I find this um, academic manifesto quite useful as a document for study. And that's all I have to say. It's, uh, thank you very much.